the law started communication hosted by molly and trisha if you are still out doing your holiday shopping be sure to check out the link tree on our instagram for our specially curated holiday gift guide these don't even have to be gifts for other people we've included things that you might like for yourself items like journals that we love books that have been game changers in our relationships and some little knickknacks for long distance friends. Again, check out our Instagram handle lost art of communication and look in our link tree for our holiday or anytime gift guide. Hello everyone. Welcome back to the lost art of communication podcast. Today we have a very special guest named Fred Dust. He is the author of Making Conversation, Seven Essential Elements of Meaningful Communication, and we are so excited to have him on the show today. Fred is also the former managing partner at IDO, uh, the design firm, and he's also an affiliate of NPR, the New School, and the Sundance Institute. So welcome, Fred. Hey, Molly and Trisha, welcome. Uh, thank you very much. And um, thank, good good job not saying Fred Durst, which is mostly how people um, introduce me. <laughs> that was how I said it in my brain a lot of the times before we met, so I practiced. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I really appreciate that. Like, I got introduced as, as, as like, Fred Durst, the founder of Making Conversation, and I'm like, I just have to stop on that one. Yeah, let us know if we if we flub anything it's, up. But. <laughs> it's, it's okay, I'm, I'm all good, so... So why don't you walk us through a little bit of your background and tell us especially what led you to write this book that just recently released? Yeah, and it's um I'll just I'll give you a, a kind of short synopsis. So, you know, I in the 90s I was an, I was an artist. I worked with a lot of artists who focused on um race, gender, diversity, um when that shifted, because it did, the art world sort of shifted. I actually went back to school for architecture, didn't really like architecture, like applied at IDEO got a job there and then started the design, like basically the architecture practice at IDEO. But the real shift happened for me is when um, I basically took a bunch of the smaller pieces of IDEO, which were like education, government, different things like that, and b- built them into one big practice. And so that meant that I ended up spending a lot of time working with, I got to work with the, the Obama administration quite a bit. I worked with a lot of major philanthropies. I worked with Elizabeth Warren for a bit. Um, so some some pretty amazing people, the former prime minister of Greece, George Papandreou. So, um, and the, the last project I was doing was with the the new and then former um, Surgeon General Vivek Murthy. He was just appointed Surgeon General again yesterday. And he was about to put out um, basically an epidemic of isolation and loneliness in America. And I was working with him to help us build new conversational models that allowed us to have catharsis and create community and also really learn about isolation and loneliness in America. And then he was fired and now he's rehired. Um, and so I emailed him yesterday. I was like, hey, let's get the band back together. But it's a, um, so anyway, in that, when, after he was fired, I realized in my kind of depression from that, I, I had this notion that that it really was time to write a book about how to have the most creative conversations of your life and how to think of conversation as a joyful and creative act. Um, and that led to me leaving audio and working on a book that took about three years because finding people who could have really amazing, optimistic, creative conversations 
and wanted to talk about it was a little harder than you can you might think given the current news hooks um, and what we like to talk about right now. So that's that's in brief. Well, it sounds like you've read our bio to our podcast. <laughs> right? <laughs> Let me just it's that. No, it's so funny. I was reading well, I was reading your bio and then I was reading through some of the stories and I was just like, oh yeah, we're like, to it's because because I, I think you were doing the same thing, which is like, I, I feel like there's a job to be done about kind of like telling the world about relentlessly that people can get through hard conversations, that it can happen. And I, and I feel like you're definitely, we are mission aligned, I will say. <laughs> definitely. Yeah. And there is an epidemic of loneliness and there is th there are things we can do about it. That's exactly right. I mean, and the reason I thought it was interesting when the reason that uh, Vivek chose that is that it also cuts across um, class and other kind of and and rural and and uh, urban. You 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 can be lonely anywhere. You know, it's like and it's it was the cause of, I mean, opioids. It's like it's the cause of a lot of other things. So um, suicide. So so yes, it's really it's important to be addressing it. Yeah, and it's so funny because communication is one of those things that we're just never explicitly taught. And so if we're not careful, it can lead to us becoming isolated or feeling lonely and not knowing what to do with it. So I love that you really provide a framework for, okay, here's how to have those difficult conversations because so many people take it for granted and think, well, I'll just have the conversation. I know how to talk and socialize, but really there's a lot of work that we can be doing to make ourselves better at that. I agree. One thing I would say though, Trisha, is that it's like, it feels to me like we... We, we might have been, if we're taught it, we might have just forgotten who taught it to us. Like, so for instance, like my mother taught me how to listen. Um, my my great grandmother taught me how to tell a, a perfect story, you know, by telling telling me stories. And so um, not not so much on, on my parents, my the dad, the male side, like my, I think my grandfather, I, who I love was monosyllabic and, but it made me, it was a different way of talking. I mean, I, I learned, I learned a lot of, of different kinds of communications from him, but but I, I do feel like we, we might find unconventional sources for the people who actually taught us how to talk. Um, and and I, I don't know, I think paying attention to those original sources is helpful. Yeah. And of course, it's all by example. And right. so it's, your grandmother taught you how to tell those stories by telling those stories. But I and correct me if I'm wrong, she may not have sat you down and said, OK, here's where you do the intro and here's how you do the middle and here's how you do the end. And <laughs> So depending on who our examples were and what we really picked up, that affects the way that we communicate to such a huge degree. And so, and then of course, with technology and the way the world is shifting in terms of how we communicate, then it becomes things that our grandmothers didn't have to deal with. They didn't text and have to no. deal with ghosting and things like that. And so suddenly there's a whole new world of, we never had an example for this and we're just all sort of navigating it on our own. Yeah, no, I, I think that's right. And, you know, and I, I think it's really interesting that you bring up texting because I, I think, for instance, one of the things I want to be really clear on is that that is a form of conversation. So one of the things that I actually feel like is really important is that we don't discard the notion that just because there's new means of having conversations, they're still conversations, mm -hmm. you know, and, and they still need rules and they still need etiquette and they still need the kind of the construct around them. And one of the things that I think a lot of people thought was going to be a big part of the book was it be a kind of big anti-tech rant. And um it's just like not so much like I, I, I sort of I like I, I think we've lost conversation, but I think it really goes back to the 50s, you know, and and television in in at, at dinner tables and television in every room, which is just not good for our health, frankly, you know, so but.
I remember I wrote a um, paper in like third grade, I think was like my first essay was about having family dinners. <laughs> and really? to, yeah. Cause my wow. family was always really big on turn off the TV when the dinner's on or when the dinner's on the table, everyone come to the table and there's just three of us. But I remember that was instilled in me so early and it was such an important routine and tradition that we had in our family even they lasted like 15 minutes because we scarfed down our food, but like we <laughs> chatted for a couple of minutes all together as a family. So it's, yeah. Cute. Well, you know, it's really interesting that you say that because I feel like um, uh, one of the most, more interesting cases, there was just like a friend who was talking, who was talking about how when she moved, they moved to um, I think Abu Dhabi and their kids, their whole family were going through kind of a, a bit of a cultural shock, right? Because it's like they're, they're, they're going from like, I think Princeton to Abu Dhabi. And um and they were given an apartment by the university and the apartment um, had like this long counter so that they could actually just like be serving the food, like, the food to the kids assembly line style. And then they would just eat standing up while the kids were eating. And they realized, wait a second, we've totally lost the family dinner table conversation. And I was like, you know, you're five people buy a round table. You've got a dining room, go put it in the dining room. And they went to do that and they realized their dining room was a really small rectangle. And so there was no way that they could actually get the table in there. Oh, so, no. yeah. But, but, but the, the point is they got back to family dinners, but it was like, it, it took a moment to be like, wait, we accidentally, we accidentally cut this out at a moment that we need it most in our lives. Um, and so I, I think it's, 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 it's surprisingly powerful. Even now, I think for me and my husband, like we set the table we sit down together like it's like it, we, we you know we toast it's like it's like it's a very it's it, we have rituals around it yeah and I like that you point out not having an anti-tech rant because technology is not going away <laughs> and this is something Molly and I have talked about a lot on this show is just saying yeah for as much as we can complain about what it's done to communication there are also benefits to it and it's we're it's here to stay and so we need to learn how to adapt rather than just saying, don't text anymore. It's like, we're going to text. And so how can we do that in a healthy, effective way? Yeah, I mean, like, don't fire somebody over Slack. Like, that's not like, <laughs> but, but or, or over text or break up with somebody over text. Like, I think I think there's some things that we should probably sort of set as kind of uh, kind of boundaries. Um, but, it, but, it, but I think, it, yeah, I, I sort of agree. And I, I would actually say that, the, you know, the last couple of years, this year specifically, it's become even more clear how how kind of embedded technology is going to be. And and frankly, I mean, if I were to be a little bit speculative, Trisha um, and Molly, I feel like I think our our cognition is changing a bit. I think the way our minds our minds are working is, is pretty different um, because of it, and the, maybe in a good way. Wait, can you go into that a little bit? Well, okay. This can get crackpot. <laughs> <laughs> Love hearing about it, though. Okay, so so I I just you know so I, I work with a neuroscientist right now, and we're looking. Um, and he's he, quite funny. He's like former teen Disney star, but now neuroscientist, and 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 he was a Sovietologist. He's he's a, a, all of my people are pretty. They're mutts. Like they're they're yeah. they're they're, 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 they're all hybrids. Um, but. But we're looking at a lot at the way that mind cognition is shifting just generally, partially because like our di diurnal cycles are shifting. So it means like, you know, like when we're most awake, when we're most alert is, is shifting in part because of, um, of the way that we're working right now. But I also just feel like there's a little bit of an expansion 
expansiveness. Like I, I, I've been noticing that, that I can, and this is terrible. I cannot believe I'm admitting this, but I, I've been able to multitask by like doing chat and stay in, stay in the box and, and, and be, pay attention and know what my dog is doing in the other room in a way that's really different. Um, partially just because I think it's like, we, we've been in this now for like 10 months, you know, in, in a really significant way. Does, does that, does that sound whack job? No. Oh, no. It, yeah. it, I think the way that our brains work, it has to be shaped by all this technology. And I find it's good in some ways and not so great in others for my, me personally. Like, I feel yeah. like, yeah, I'm good at multitasking now, but my memory has suffered a little bit because I'm not as present on anything anymore because I'm constantly between tabs and between devices and yeah. Yeah. pros and cons. But I'm sure that our, our brains are adapting to these yeah. changes. Techno- it's not like we just got smartphones yesterday. We've had them for a while now. And yeah, and, and that's a really interesting thing. Like, I mean, I, for instance, you know, there's there's nothing, there are no devices on my table now while I'm talking to you. You're 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 like you're you're like the focus. And that that's kind of that's a rule that I I, I sort of set, you know, between between me and the people who are having really important conversations. And the same thing, it's just going back to Molly, your story. Um, when we sit down for dinner, there's no technology on the table. In fact, like I I, I insist that we make the table together. Um, so I feel like that's actually showing that it's our conversation that we're having together, my husband and I. Um, but boy, yeah, I like the days where I'm like, where did I put my socks? <laughs> it's like, and I'm like walking around for like 15 minutes is like, that is weird. It's like, <laughs> That's that, definitely happened to me way more. Yeah. These past nine, 10 months, because yeah, we have to multitask and yeah, definitely good. Some good things happening to our brains, different things, but it's, it has to, they have to be changing. Like there's yeah. no way they're the same. Yeah. Um, so I wanted to bring it back a little bit to your book. I know it's the seven elements of designing a successful conversation. I don't want you to read your book to us or give away all of the tips for it. But could you go over a little bit of what kind of, I guess, the outline of a successful conversation is? Yeah, I mean, uh, what I'll do is, yeah, there, there, there's seven elements. And I, I want to be really clear about it, which is that it's like, it, it's when you hear seven elements of a successful conversation and there's seven C's, you know, it's like commitment, creative listening, clarity. Um, it, it can sound a little formulaic. Um, it's not meant to be a methodology. It's meant to be an approach. And so really it's it's meant to be, here's 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 some ways to think about this. But, but hey, Molly and Trisha, what's the way that feels most natural to you, right? And so it's like, so one, one of the things, for instance, I talk about is keeping a conversation notebook, um, which, by the way, is akin to people, like, if, if you journal, often you might be like, oh, I had this conversation and it really broke my heart, or this really brought brought joy to me, you know, or I, I feel like this, I did this, but I handled this wrongly, um, in, in the wrong way. A conversation notebook is just kind of like, it's for people who don't like journals and don't like diaries. It's like, it's just a notebook. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> I, I, I get it. It's like, it's like, I, I, it's, it's, it's like literally just a notebook, or it's, it's like a day one, whatever, whatever, or whatever you want to do, or, um, it's just kind of, calling out to yourself these are the places where I feel like I was able to succeed in a conversation that was really hard what did I do like like it's like what what, what did I learn about that um and that that helps you begin to own your way of, of kind of getting through conversations in your own way and in your own style like you're I don't want you to be me I don't want people to be you I, I want people to be them like that's that's really important that we kind of find find the correct voices but I, I will say a few things that are kind of key elements, um, commitment is, is the first one. And I'll, I'll just sort of say that I believe this is about 
this is really important. It's it's really about committing to the people who are in the conversation first and committing to the conversation first and holding your values and your ideas a little bit secondary for, for a little bit. And that's really hard for people to do. Um, and I'll tell you, honestly, this came up because I gave a lecture at Aspen and the first question that came up after, I, then it was six C's. And then it was also, it was called the conversation palette because it was like, it was sort of like playing with Instagram filters and stuff like and and that, that didn't fly with my publisher, but, but it's like, but, but it, I, I thought it was awesome. But, um, but someone was like, well, what do you do when you go into a conversation with somebody who hates you right off the bat? And I was like, oh, right. That's a real thing that happens. And so I, I like out of the back pocket, I was like, well, you just have to commit to those people. Um, and what I mean by that is that we need to, we need to commit and and really be there for people. Not like don't feel like you're going to get all the way through a conversation every single conversation. That you can have multiple conversations to get to where you want to go, um, and that I think that matters a lot. And that matters right now when we're in a place of political divide, race divide, other kinds of divisions. Um, that we really commit, especially when we see difference. So one of the places where we typically like run is when we see people who are different from us, right? Um, and so I really believe we should be looking for the places where there is difference and really doubly commit to those conversations and really double, doubly commit to understanding. Um, and there's, there's a lot of tips and tricks for, for how to do that. Um, so that, that, that's, that's an important element. Creative listening. And I know, I know we, went, we went on and on about, I'm like, all pro technology. Creative listening is about the idea of like being attentive and really like, like, and not doing, not, not necessarily active listening, which is just like saying, uh-huh, uh-huh, but actually questioning and feeling curious and getting some joy in the listening, um, which really, really matters. Um, sometimes creative listening is about silence. Like you guys just sitting in silence and letting whatever I say wash over you and which you're doing pretty, pretty well. So that means I'm probably talking too much, but so that it can help you make creative associations better. That's, that's actually like, that comes out of the psychology of creativity that when we, when we're in silence and um, our, our minds often make associations that they don't make otherwise, which is why we have great ideas in the shower um, or why in Quaker meetings, they believe you might find God you know, in, if you start to listen to yourself. So, so that, like, those are the first two, but, um, but there's, there's, there's seven. And so it's like, and, and by the way, it, it is an audiobook, and I read the audiobook, so you can, you can still listen to it that way, which was fascinating. I will just say. <laughs> to record the audiobook. <laughs> I, I recorded the audiobook in like a hundred degree, under 110 degrees oh, in wow. like in two days with, without any food, without any water, because you can't have, as you know, like vocal noises or like gastrointestinal noises and things like that. So, um, but I love extremes. So it was, it was, it was kind of a joy. Like I, I swear by the second day I saw God, like it was just, it was like a sweat lodge. Well, it, now it was, when I've listened to the audiobook, I'll just be thinking of you like sweating over it, <laughs> starving. Oh yeah. I was like in a t-shirt and I'm not joking my underwear because they were like, we can't see you because the booth is so clouded up because it was, it was during the pandemic. So it's like, mm-hmm. I couldn't leave the, the audio booth and they couldn't have air conditioning running because it, it interferes with the, so- the, the sound. So it was, it was a trip. 
yeah yeah it's like i mean it, it definitely had like an ayahuasca kind of like like moment to, to it yeah. That's so i want to go back to what you were saying though about these tips because these are so helpful and i love the way that you use the term creative listening it's not a phrase i've heard before but i really like that because i think for a lot of people listening and trying hard to listen can feel almost stifling to the point that they're no longer present in the conversation because they're trying so hard to listen. And right. if it doesn't come naturally for you, listening as a skill, I really like that phrase creative listening because then you make it more of a fun process and it, as opposed to something that feels inhibitive. Yeah, no, I mean, it's like, I, and, and I, I'm really curious, Trisha, because it's like, I mean, you, you, you do so much kind of coaching and work in this space, but I feel like... Um, you know, one of the things I like is not listening is like me repeating the last sentence that you said and saying, I, I think, I think I understand. Like, it, it's like, that's, that feels like work. And I think one of the big problems with listening is if you think about it, we coach it, we couch it as a, um, as work. It's, it's always sounds like hard work. Like we'll have a boss who will say, I'm going to give everybody a good, hard listening to, right? Like, it's like, it's, it, 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 it's something like that. Or, um, or, the mayor had no choice but just to listen, to sit there and listen and 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 take it. You know, it's like it's like we don't we don't we don't put positive, joyful, like terms around listening. You know, it's like even even active listening. It's like, yeah, okay. It's like that's, that's, that's like that's fine. You know, it's like so. But it's like I think creative listening or joyful listening or or you know, it's like like. Are, are, are just like they're, they're better ways to think about the way listening should feel and as as you know like i i talk like about listening like it's gossip you know it's like trying to get trying to get the little bit of like the tidbits of gossip from the person that you're talking to or um you know what one of the, one of the reasons i really like secrets is that they're like really 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 good 10 word stories with a twist you know it's like and 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 they'll, they'll stick with you for a long time so um so I, I, those kinds of things are, are really interesting things to, to borrow from as you're learning how to listen again. And I think of listening to sometimes like selfishly, like what am I going to get out of this conversation, right? Like if you bring yes. it that way, I feel like we're all kind of selfish beings. And it's like, okay, like what are you going to get? What revelations are you going to have? And, and I love how you said that too, like gossip secrets, like what are you going to learn about this person, about the world? Like you're bettering yourself. And I think it's such an interesting framework to take. No, I mean, I, it's Molly. I mean, if I really wanted to kind of get people, I would just call it selfish listening because it's like, that's exactly <laughs> what it is. But it's like, it's like, yes, it should feel like the most kind of like joyful, like I, I get to learn something about somebody, you know, it's like that, that's how it should be feeling. Um, and so I, so if, if that works as, as a, as a frame for you, like go for it. I think that's great. I'll reframe it. Selfish listening. I'll <laughs> trademark it. It's fine. Oh yeah. Oh, just, I mean, take your third grade essay and then start your new book. It's like, <laughs> Done. New business venture. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> no, but it's truly, I feel really frustrated if I walk out of a conversation and I realize I did all the talking and I'm like, wait, I didn't learn anything. I didn't get any new scoop in that conversation. What did that, how did that benefit me? And of course there's a place for talking and sharing. And I have the problem where I tend to not share as much as I should because I love listening so much, but I like that framework because it's sometimes hard to coach people who this doesn't come naturally to, and they're so fixated on what they're saying. So if you turn it around and say, think about how much benefit you're going to get from 
hearing what the other person has to say. And I guarantee if that person said, oh, I've got something juicy, you would zip your lips and you would be listening to what they had to say. So treating every conversation like that is a really clever way to go about it, I think. No, I I mean, I think that's right. And what I think is interesting about that um, is sometimes my husband will like listen to my team meetings because it's like I have like this kind of team, this motley crew that that I love. Like we we were like like misfit toys, but, um, and, um, and, and he'll be like, okay, so I guess you were working, but you mostly seem like you were talking about the trashiest movies that you like. And like, and you know, cause like, well, and then, cause sometimes they have to listen to me a lot because I'm like going through all the things that have to get done. So I feel really bad for them. So every once in a while we'll just go late and we'll be like, let's go around the room and talk about like, what, what's our, like, that's our favorite guilty admission for trashy films, you know? And like, and, and, and that goes, ends up going on for 20 minutes or, or, you know, to be honest, like yesterday, we start our, t- our Monday meetings with like, let's hear how everybody's doing. And if someone's not doing well, we'll, we'll stop and we'll, we'll work on them. So I have a, like a 24 year old woman who works for me, she's in Seattle and she was dealing with potential eviction issues. And we're like, okay, we're going to stop and we're going to work on this instead of everything else. And like, and so I think, but if, but if she hadn't said that, she would have just sat there in silence and we would have not gotten what the important, the most important thing that needed to happen in that conversation. And then so. maybe what she was presenting and putting forth in that meeting might have rubbed you guys the wrong way because she was not in the right headspace. And that's so great that you gave this space to hold her in that moment. Well, that's a really interesting thing, Molly. And, I, and I'm, I'm glad you brought it up because it's something that I think about quite a bit. And I, 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 I talk about it in my life and in, in the book, but it's like in my work as a designer and a creative often the hardest work that I have to do, the hardest conversations are critique, right? So is like, is looking at somebody's work and saying, it's not quite working, right? Or it needs, it needs a fix. And, and I've set some pretty kind of harsh, fierce rules around critique for myself. Um, and a lot of it, like, a lot of it's like time of day, when in the work are they doing, are they presenting it? If it's a day before, forget it. You're not going to do critique. It's basic things. But one of the things I believe, and it goes to what you were saying, Molly, is that this is my team, right? So it's like we're we're colleagues. I consider them colleagues, but but I pay them, and so it's like so it's, there there is there is a power dynamic, and so it, given that, I have to make room to say, hey, okay, let's let's pass the power dynamic away from me over to you for this period of of time. Eventually, it'll have to come back to me as we do some of this stuff. But like like, and let's help you set the rules. And so I do that with the design reviews, where I'll be like hey, okay, like I'm about to review your work. What can't I touch? And I, so I, I pass the rules over to them. And what do you need help on? And then, and, when, and we'll work together on that. And then and then it, then, the, then it comes back to me. But it's like, you have to purposefully do that. Um, and it's not something that we're very good at doing. And that, that I think Molly relates to relationships. I think that relates to, you know, dating. It relates to, I mean, you you, you name it. Well, I mean, even just recognizing and acknowledging the fact that you have a power role, I think is key too, because I think that can go unsaid throughout a conversation, throughout a relationship, throughout a whatever. And if that's not addressed, that's a huge elephant in the room and the fact that you address it and then take that hat off for a second and then put it back on very clearly so other people are aware of that makes the roles clearer and communication more free-flowing and easy. Yeah. Yeah. And it's like, and it's really funny because it's like, you can think about that like in so many different places, but it's like, you can like, it's, it can be in 
couples dynamics where one person makes more money or, or God forbid, you know, that the classic, like, Oh, this one, you know, this one's the hotter one. You know I mean? Whatever, whatever it is, it's like, it's like, it's like, like in some ways recognizing and continually passing the power allows for a more openness, I think in, in, in the conversations and relationships that we have across the board in our lives. So I don't know. It feels, yeah. it feels like it's an important, an important action to do. Super important. So I'm curious, what other tips or advice do you have for giving critique or giving feedback, whether in a professional context or even, as you're saying, in a romantic relationship, if someone does something that rubs you the wrong way, do you have any go-to? Yeah, I mean, th- th- this is a great example. And it's funny, I had this from somebody, um, like a, he's like this he's like a coach. He's like, he's in his thirties. He's a, he's a dear friend. And, and he read it and he realized that one of the things that happened is like, he, he, he would, he would say often to his wife, um, Hey, can I give you some feedback? And she would say, can you not right now? Like, it's like, I just don't feel like I can handle it. And he was like, well, I think it's really important that you hear this feedback. And he would persist. Cause it's like, cause he's a coach. He's like, he's in the feedback mindset. And one of the things he said after reading the book is he was like, Oh, wait a second. Like, if she says, no, I can't right now, I should probably just like not, you know, it's like, and, and I think that's true. And I, I, and there's been some, I have to say, there's been some controversy in some of the business audiences that I've talked to about this, but I think it's true in the workplace too, which is that I think, I think feedback is important. I think it's, it's, but it's important that it's like given at a moment when people feel like they're ready for it and they, they can engage with it. And so, you know, with my teams, I'm like, if I have feedback for you, can I ask you up like, you know, up front? And if they can't, then I'm like, great, let's not worry about it. We'll do it. We'll do it another day. You know, it's like, so it's like, cause I just think at any given moment, we're emotionally just not set for, for what it takes to, to, to take it. I, I mean, there's days I can't, I just can't take it. You know, it's like, and I, and I say, no, it's like, I just can't. So, so that's, that's a really simple one. Um, you know, it's like, I also, I don't believe in like radical candor. Like, it's like, I I believe in kind of what I would consider like, I think caring candor or compassionate candor, which is just kind of like really working from a place of being like, I want to, I want to help you. And like, it's like, let, let's work together on this. And and it's like, and, and here's the places where I could use help on, on, on things like that. I think that really feels like a, a more natural kind of frame in my mind for, for me on the way that we think about feedback. Um, it's a, um, and, and I, and I think it's something that like, uh, again, it's important to build it into the workplace. Like it's, it's, it's not right to not think of our workplaces as emotional systems. Um, they, they are highly emotional systems and, and, and we need to actually allow that to enter into, into the ways that we have conversations in the workplace. Yeah. And I think that's huge because when you forget the emotional element, no one's going to be performing as well as they would be if they feel emotionally aligned with the environment, with the company culture, with the work. And so I love that. I love that phrase, compassionate candor, because that's huge. And you need to bring that emotional component to anything you do in order for people, because at the end of the day, we're still people, we're not robots, and we need to have that emotional satisfaction and connection. So I think that's an excellent way to go about it. Yeah, I I think that's right. And I also think it's like finding ways to have us kind of kind of build greater, greater bonds or respect across what things what would appear difference, you know, it's like, like, you know, I'm, I'm 50. I'm actually mid 50s. And but what's funny is that it's like, I'm finding like, my teams have been just so thoughtful and so thankful for, for support. And then I've, my, my, my teams, which are mostly millennial teams, um, 
have been amazing and there and joyous and engaged every every day of of of, of this of this work. And I I feel like um it's just because we've really treated our bond as an emotional bond and, and first and a work bond second, you know, and then it's like, and we all have this common goal, which is the same goal that you two have, which is like getting people out there having really good, hard conversations in exciting and creative ways. So. Yeah. So speaking of hard conversations as a perfect little segue, (laughs) (laughs) um, I had a question about just right now we're in this heightened political and social and race climate. Um, I know you mentioned there's some points in your book, I think about talking about some of the big issues going on in our world right now. How would you, what are some tips and some strategies, I guess, for people wanting to have big conversations around maybe Black Lives Matter, maybe around politics with people who don't necessarily either have the same views as them, they've never brought it up together. What are some strategies you have around that? Because I think those are such important conversations that bring such, you know, good ideas to the table. Um, but I think a lot of times we're scared to have them. Yeah, I think that's right. And I, and, I, and I think that the first trick is to practice having the conversations. So it's like, so so like, so practice. And I'll give you a, a couple of interesting like examples. So I work with a woman named um, Mary Gentili. She's a dear friend. And she, she wrote a book called Giving Voice to Values that I highly recommend. It's it's slimmer than mine. And it's, it's, it's basically about um, how people stand up for themselves um, in the workplace. Um, and it was like, and it's basic things like, what happens if somebody tells a racist joke or what if, you know, if what, what, what happens if, and, and, and her belief is twofold. And, and, and then I'll, I'll get it back to your question, which is that um, people who do that well have practiced it and practiced it all their lives. Often they'd had a grandparent or a great grandparent who made them practice standing up for, for things. So going back to where you learn um, these things, Trisha, Trisha. Um, and then, um, and then often, um, and one, one of the things they do really well is they do it in their own voice. So she's a very shy, shy person. She's an introvert, Mary. And she's not the kind of person who could stand up and say, hey, you, you just, you made a, you told a racist joke, stop it. Um, but so she, she, she gives her own personal example. By the way, she built this practice out of model mugging. She was like, if we can do model mugging, how could we, could we apply that to um, the classroom? But, but anyway, um, I mean, to, to, um, to business context. Um, but she talks about interrupting a racist joke that was being told um, and she's with the man who was telling it. And she just said, we really have a lot of work to do. Can we move on? And he was like, oh, oh, of course. You know, it's like, so very simple, subtle shift. But I, I recommend that you just start practicing. And so I'll be honest, I, I'm in a rural county. Um, when I'm not here, I'm in rural Maine. Um, it's like, it's like, like people vote differently than I. Um, it's like, I, it, it, it doesn't matter to me. It matters that they vote you know, is, 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 is a thing. It's like that, that, that is a, I mean, the book is fiercely apolitical. Um, but, but for instance, like I, my husband thinks it's ridiculous. I love talking to wait staff and people in restaurants and like Uber drivers and taxi drivers and, and things like that, because I, first of all, because I learn things like amazing things. Like I, I learn about, like I once had an Uber driver who like ran retailing in all of North America before he left to do Uber. And I was like, Oh my God, I learned more about retailing strategy from him than anyone else. And, but, but what's interesting is that what's great is that you will, it allows you to have like a kind of like, it gives you good practice. Like, so for instance, like find a point of commonality. I have a really cute dog. You know, it's like, so it's like, I'll show a picture of my cute dog to, to like a wait staff that I know votes different for me. 
And like, it breaks down the boundaries. And I remember sitting with one young woman over the summer, she was just old enough to vote. It was her first time voting. It was clear she was gonna vote differently than I. And we just, we just talked about her and her aspirations and pregnancy and like whether she wants to have kids and, and how soon she wants to have kids. And so I feel like we had an influential conversation on the ways that she might think about about the issues that she votes on, but we didn't talk about the topic of who she was voting on. So, so I, I feel like there's there's a lot of ways you can do it by getting to know somebody individually, you know. And I'm somebody like I I'm good friends with two of the comms people for Movement for Black Lives. Like it's like, um, you know, I, I was hesitant to reach out to them to find out if if everything was good, you know, because I was like I, I don't want to be like tokenistic. But but um, but but by the way, those those conversations were forged in hardship. It took a lot of personal anecdotes and explanations to get ourselves to a place where we could actually find alignment. You know, I'm a gay man who grew up in the eighties during HIV AIDS, which we considered genocide um, at that point. Um, and so, uh, and, and you could, and, and it was certainly considered genocide in, in the global South in Africa. And so, so it's like, I, I Believe it or not, I, I do have a perspective on what it feels like to, to see genocide. Um, but but it took us two years to get to the place where we could really have that conversation. So so I, I just don't expect the conversation to happen fast, mm -hmm. I guess, is, is the way I think about it, Molly. But but like like you can kind of inch towards the conversation. And it's a bit, but I'm sorry, were you thinking about like how to have like giant spectacular conversations about this? Because because we can talk about that too, because there, there are ways to do that. Well, I think, well, yeah, you're hitting on a good point though, regardless, like that is important too, to humanize the person and make those connections starting off by like allowing space to talk yeah. in general, <laughs> because if you just start off like, Hey, we're voting differently and let's <laughs> talk about it. Like that's not going to be any way or like, I believe this yeah. differently. Let's do it. You know, like you're going into it in a hostile mindset. It's different than like, Hey, like let's sit down and chat. Like what are some other things we might have in common? And then that builds a relationship and then you can actually respectfully yeah. discuss things. So the person you're talking to, you're not just talking to a picture like we no, do on right. the internet. <laughs> there are yeah. a human in front of us. Um, and yeah, if you have any other tips about, I guess even- Yeah, because there's spectacular ways too. ways too. So like, you know, I, I've, done, I've got this thing called creative tensions, which I'm not going to go into into great depth right now, but it's really interesting. It's basically, it puts up tensions in a room and people move back and forth across the room to where, where they kind of, they, they, believe, they believe their values are aligned. Um, and what's good about that, by the way, is it's a great, it's a great way to have a conversation conversation with a huge group of people, some of whom may be introverts, because just by moving, they can express themselves, right? So it's like they don't have to speak in order to kind of to kind of express themselves. But I did one that was on um, gun violence in, in New York. It was with NYCLU. And it was it was basically, uh, it was police officers, it was victims of, of, of police officers crimes. Uh, so uh, black mothers, mostly who's who'd lost their children. Um, other people, city officials, and we did this event and where people would move back and forth. And one of the tensions was um, when, I'm, when police are around, I feel safe or I feel afraid, right? And what was interesting is on the afraid side, there was a black mother who'd lost her child to a, um, to, um, to a police, police violence and a black police officer who had three black sons. And so they were able to kind of have a conversation together that was like spectacular. You know, it's like, it was, it was, it was, 
That gave me some chills actually just thinking about that moment, like because you're building that bridge without having to talk about it initially and then there's you're seeing the commonalities that happen yeah and and what's thank you i think that's that's right and the fact that it gave you chills is a really interesting thing because what that what that what that hits to another piece that's in the book that's about that's that's about conversation which is when that happened you could feel the change in the room you could feel it and so all i could do because i was the one who 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 run who who kind of uh, i was sort of a I don't know what we call it, the catalyst or something like that, but um, was basically step off of like my two stage. I have a, a two, two step stage. So I could actually step down and like walk over and just be like, thank you. You know, it's like what, what you've done has actually changed this, this whole group. Um, and, the, and, and noticing change is one of the things we need to do in conversation because that's what allows us to propel ourselves forward. Right. Like, it's like, if we don't, if we don't notice that change, because once that change happens, then you can get to a next change because you could, you could like, if you build off the energy of that, then there's something else that can come after that. But if you lose it, which often we will be like, well, like, that happened. Right? I mean, that's actually a phrase I, I realize I say a lot that I don't, I, maybe it isn't so good. Well, well, that just happened, which is kind of like, it's kind of dismissal of change. You should be like, no, that happened. Right. It's like, that, that that's, that, that's a good thing. Um, but, but yeah, so it can be done on a spectacular level as well. Um, it's a little more death-defying, but, it's a, it's, but, but it can be done. It's, it's, well, that's a great I way to say it. Everything <laughs> you're saying, though, and have been saying, it touches on the fact that we really need to see past the labels. I've found myself this right. year more than ever labeling people as like, oh, this is someone who would vote for that person. And, the thing, and in a negative way, and it's like, these are people that a year ago I didn't care and they, I valued them as a human. And so what you were saying about seeing the person and finding the commonalities, bridging the barriers and realizing at the end of the day, we're all still people and you want to see the person first and their political views secondary, you know, like that can be a conversation, but it won't be a productive one until you actually connect with that person on a human level. Yeah. You know, it's funny because it's like in the book, I, I, I talk a lot about the value of naming things. And I, I think it's really important until it becomes really risky. Right. And I, and I think when we start naming people, so like when we say anti-maskers or, you know, I mean, what, 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 whatever else we, we, we say, that becomes really risky. Also, because as we know, anti-maskers ask maskers cut across demographics and cut across um, race. Mm-hmm. Cut, I mean, it's like it's like we, we have like wealthy you know, white privileged anti-maskers down the road. You know, it's just like that's that's the way that's the way it is. So, so I just don't think that 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 helps us that much. And I think it's often the tool of politicians. And um, really good politicians are really savvy around labeling people or labeling issues in ways like the wall disguises what the issue really is, right? Yeah. So, so, we, so we, it's it, like, yeah, I think it's a good time to like really go through our vocabularies. This is where I think. Not a journal, not a diary, but like like a notebook is a great thing. Which is like like just write down like take ten minutes and write down all the labels that you use that you think you should start to kind of exercise from your from your vocabulary. I mean, I'm going to do that. I think I just realized. I just re- yeah, that sounds fantastic. Okay, cool. Let's that. all do it, we, and we, we we can share. Yeah, accountability <laughs> buddies. I, I'm there for you. Let's <laughs> so do it. What can and this might be a, a broader <laughs> question, but what can people expect to get from reading this book? I mean, I don't know. <laughs> it's like, like I, I'll, I'll, I'll tell you. I mean, it's like, I don't want to tell people what, what they should expect. I think that um, at, at its best, people have written to say, 
it feels like being in conversation with me. Um, and some, some people, it, you know, as, it, as you know, I talk about the fact that by the end of the book, by the end of the research of the book, I felt cured. Like I felt like I actually could believe in optimism and hope around conversation in the world again. Um, and and I, I think I told I, in the story, it was because this young woman who was an addict who I interviewed for part of the book, she asked me like, um, what it, did, did I feel cured? Because, and I was like, well, I don't think I was sick. And I was like, oh, wait a second. I was totally sick. You know, it's like, so, um, but I, I think it's, it should be inspirational. I think it's sometimes it's kind of funny. I don't know. I like, I read the audiobook and I was like, oh yeah, this is kind of funny. And like, the stories are really short. It's like, it's like, there's like a, like a gazillion tips and tricks. Like, it's just like, it's like, it's like a, it's like a toolbox of, of stuff. So, um, I don't know. I, I think it's kind of, it's slim, right? I mean, it's a, it's a beach read. So um, treat, treat it like a beach read. <laughs> and there's a lot of secrets about me. Ooh, juicy. <laughs> so if you like gossip, yeah. I get it. So read it like gossip. <laughs> last question. I will definitely be ordering the book, by the way. But last question that we like to ask all of the guests on the show is if there was one actionable to do or step that people can put into place to begin having better conversations, what would that tip be? I think I'm going to ask like the one person I would, I would want to talk to. That's what a lot of people have been getting, which by the way, it's Jacinda Hearns, just a hundred percent. But I will I say, I, say um, uh, I, I think if you can't talk, do together. And so, and I, I mean that in like, I mean that both in the political context, in the cultural context, but I also mean it like if you're an introvert, you know, and you feel like it's like it's it's taxing to have a conversation, then consider just going on a hike with somebody or, you know, or doing or, do, you know, doing something like, you know, something that that's that's making because what you'll find is just that doing together is enough. Like it's it starts to build the bonds and connections. And so I think that will allow people who might not feel like might be like there's just no way this conversation thing is going to work for me like I just I can't do it then like be like that's fine just like go out and I mean take a take take a hike in the in the Oakland Hills um now I can't remember which one of you is uh, I, Molly you're you're in Oakland yeah so <laughs> I'm planning on doing that this weekend okay good so um, go do that with yeah the I actually work with a lot of students who have social cognitive deficits and literally last week, this one student I have, we have such a hard time connecting. And I said, hey, let's make some candy necklaces. And that was the most open I've ever seen her in my life. And I love that example. I think that's such a good takeaway. Oh, good. I'm glad. Yeah, it's, it's like I, I was just making ornaments with like my seven-year-old godson in Chicago by Zoom. But it was, it was still fun. So. <laughs> that's important because as you were talking, I was thinking, well, it's really hard during a pandemic to go do stuff with your friends. And so I feel like a lot of communication has just come down to phone calls or video chats. But I like that you bring up, you can still do an activity on Zoom. Oh yeah, and and as you know, there's a whole chapter on how to manage. I mean, it's four pages chapter on how to manage like the hardest conversations during a pandemic on oh, Zoom. Yeah. So it's like so it's because I I had I had to write that wow. <laughs> in an afternoon, by the way. So wow. it's like, but but I, I still live by all the tips that are in there. So great. Amazing. Well, thank you so much for all of your insights. I have thoroughly enjoyed this conversation. I've been taking notes myself and uh, just want to ask where can our listeners find you? You can buy it at 
any um, any bookstore. You can do it at Amazon. You can do it like at your locals, which would be really fantastic if you did do that. Like, so I, I, I don't know what is the one in Savannah, but Oakland has tons of great um, uh, great bookstores. So Diesel, is that still a bookstore? I can't remember, but there's there's something there. Yeah. Yeah, I haven't heard of Diesel, but there's a lot. And I think that we can actually link like one of those local bookstore finders in our show notes as well. So people can be encouraged to find them through a local bookstore too. Great, cool. And thanks. Thank you so much. It was so great having you. And again, in case you forgot, if you are still out doing your holiday shopping, be sure to check out the link tree on our Instagram for our specially curated holiday gift guide. These don't even have to be gifts for other people. We've included things that you might like for yourself. Items like journals that we love, books that have been game changers in our relationships, and some little knickknacks for long distance friends. Again, check out our Instagram handle Lost Art of Communication and look in our link tree for our holiday or anytime gift guide.